The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. What an encouraging set. Thank you so much. You know, if the biblical Thomas were actually here, he would never have doubted. He He wouldn't need it. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John 20. We're going to be looking at the last part of this chapter, uh, the experience of Thomas, who really is the perfect example of John's purpose in writing this book. He states it that, that people would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. Okay, do you think Thomas, having the nickname Doubting Thomas, has been treated with a great unkindness? Yes. Yeah. Um, wasn't Thomas's real mistake missing that first church service? Um, because Jesus showed up. And having a week, he had a week on his own, hearing his own voice, um, the gloom. This probably led to this cynical reaction that we read, this outburst. And when we look at Thomas's history, you know, we might better think of him as courageous Thomas. Right? Why isn't he known as Courageous Thomas or Bold Thomas? Think of John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus. When Jesus, he's planning to go back to Judea where the Jews want to kill him. And let's remember that it was Courageous Thomas. It was, it was Bold Thomas, Loyal Thomas, who said, Let us also go that we may die with him. Then again, it could have sounded like, well, okay, let's go, that we may die with him. Uh, so maybe there's a case for calling him pessimistic Thomas, uh, or gloomy, cynical Thomas, which really isn't any better. Um, how about chapter 14? Jesus says that he's going away, and, and it's Thomas. It's Thomas who replies, with well, Lord, we don't know where you're going How can we know the way? So we might think of him as inquisitive Thomas, or saying what everybody else is thinking Thomas. Uh, But really, I think doubting Thomas is just unfair. After all, didn't the resurrection catch them all by surprise? After the cross, they they all scattered. They all hid They went to the tomb expecting to see a body. They all doubted. We all, prior to faith, found ourselves in a state of unbelief. There's a sense in which Jesus said to each of us, do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus comes to each of us. He reveals himself to us and he calls us out of doubt and unbelief to belief, to faith in him. Again, Thomas's big mistake, I think, is missing church, is having a week away from other believers, being stuck with his own gloomy thoughts, then being so discouraged that he, 
He couldn't share in the joy, the joyful experiences, the testimonies of others. We need to be together. I'm, I'm sort of joking, but I'm sort of not. This is, this is the state of mind that we find ourselves in when we're just hearing our own thoughts, when we're not around other believers and hearing the goodness of the Lord in their life and what that does to us. So we need to worship Him. We need to be reminded that the resurrection changes everything. And no matter what gloomy circumstances are around us, there's always hope. There's always a peace that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. So our text is John 20, verses 24 to 31. And before we read it, let's, would you join me in prayer? Our great and awesome God, our Lord, Master, and Friend, thank you for calling us to gather each Sunday to worship you. A day which reminds us that this is the day of the week that Jesus rose from the grave. A new start to the week ahead of us. A refreshing opportunity to, to gather as, as a body and know the presence of Christ. Communicating that because of the cross we have, we have peace with you. We have your peace within us as we go and live in a skeptical world that doubts you. Lord, might we trust the work of your Spirit and never give up on the doubters in our lives. Let them see a difference in us because of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Okay, John 20, 24 to 31. You remember the tradition that's going to be ours? After the reading of God's word, I'm going to say, this is the word of God. And you're going to reply with what? Thanks be, Thanks be to God. Okay. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. John 20, beginning with verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails... And place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and... Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Okay, John wrote this book with a purpose. For the sake of belief. 
giving us this last example in Thomas. Saving faith or belief is specific. So let's think about belief. And let's ask ourselves, why did Thomas believe? What did he believe? And what does this, what does this mean for us? Again, why did Thomas believe? What did he believe? And what does this mean for us? First, why did Thomas believe? Well, you might think, isn't it obvious? Isn't it simple? He saw the risen Lord. But what does Thomas say in verse 25? Let's remember, let's remember his skepticism. Let's remember his conditions for believing. He says, I will not believe unless I can do three things. Unless, he says, unless he sees with his own eyes the nail marks. And unless he he can put his finger into those holes. And apparently knowing that Jesus was pierced with a sword, Thomas says that he needs to place his hand into Jesus' side. First of all, Does this sound like an honest desire to know the truth? Or more like a a frustrated, irritated outburst? Thinking that everyone else is delusional. It also sounds a bit, it's crude, it's irreverent. Thomas, at this point, is not simply a doubter. He's an unbeliever. He thinks what they're saying is impossible. It's like the person today who says that they, can, they, they can't believe in a God that they can't see or hear. That if only God would, would show himself, give them a sign, write a, write a message up in the clouds, or do a miracle, that, that then they'd believe. No, they're just like Thomas. They don't believe. They may wonder why you believe, They may secretly admire some aspects of your faith, but having their demands met is not really what will convince them. Because it's not a matter of physical evidence. It's a spiritual problem. It's not a matter of physical evidence. It never has been. Jesus told us in John 3 that it's a work of the Spirit, that that a person can't see can't enter into the kingdom of God unless what? Unless the Spirit causes them to be born again. The problem is not a lack of evidence. Think of all the people who saw Jesus do what no other man ever did. How he raised Lazarus from the dead, and instead of dropping to their knees and saying, like Thomas eventually does, my Lord and my God... What did they do? Many of them, they they plotted how to kill him. That's a funny response. Think of all the evidence that Jesus gave. All of the healings. All of the miracles. How they recognized that this man spoke with authority unlike anyone else. How he never sinned. How he always spoke the truth. How he showed great love and compassion. 
he was unlike anyone they'd ever seen before. Some even saw him after the resurrection and they still didn't believe. Nothing's changed really today. You know, there's a lot of evidence. Historical eyewitnesses, archaeological evidence, thousands of copies of biblical manuscripts, story after story of real people whose lives are transformed. Ours is not a blind faith. There are many logical, rational, scientific, experiential reasons to believe. And God may sovereignly use these kinds of things as a means to accomplish his will, bringing about genuine belief. But if he doesn't, then none of them are going to make any difference because the only real explanation is a spiritual one. Okay, but you might still be thinking, but really, wasn't Thomas convinced by the evidence? What made the difference? Jesus knew Thomas's demands, and he graciously offered himself for his inspection. But the impression that we're given, the, the impression that we're given is that these demands quickly became irrelevant. We don't read of Thomas actually putting his finger in the holes or his hand in Jesus's side. Jesus, he gave physical evidence. But ultimately, that wasn't it. That wasn't, ultimately, it was a spiritual transformation created by the very, I think, by the very words of Jesus that we read in our text. Look at verse 27. We might read this as a command. Words similar to Lazarus come out. Jesus says, Thomas, do not disbelieve, believe. Lazarus come out. Thomas, believe. It's like God who said, let there be light. And as a result, Thomas saw the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Why did Thomas believe? Yes, there was evidence standing before him. And yes, God uses many things to accomplish his will. But ultimately, Thomas was born again. He was blind, but now he sees. He sees the risen Lord. A second thing for us to consider is that saving faith doesn't just believe in Jesus in general. A lot of people say they believe in Jesus who don't really believe in Jesus. Saving faith believes essential truths about Jesus. Poor Thomas, he gets this terrible nickname of of doubting Thomas. And that's how we tend to remember him. But the reality is that all of the disciples doubted. It just took Thomas longer because he skipped church. Instead of doubting Thomas, we should call him discouraged Thomas or maybe grumpy Thomas. So on the one hand, we have this this negative association with Thomas. And yet, he's the one who gives really the greatest the highest of all professions concerning Jesus. Look at verse 28. Thomas goes from disbelief to belief, likely dropping to his knees in worship, saying, my Lord 
and my God. Thomas made a profession concerning Jesus using two terms that every Christian must embrace. There are many people who think of themselves as Christians and aren't because they don't believe what Thomas clearly states here. First of all, Thomas called Jesus his Lord. He didn't call him teacher and not not merely master, though Lord certainly includes the idea of master. He called him kurios, which is the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, for God's high name, Yahweh. In essence, Thomas is giving the confession of Psalm 16.2, which says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Some Christians have been wrongly taught that they can look to Jesus as their Savior, but not necessarily as Lord. This is not Thomas's confession, and it must not be ours. Faith in Jesus demands surrendering to him as our sovereign Lord. Second, Thomas's profession is concerning the deity of Christ by calling him my God. Thomas on two levels refers to Jesus' deity. There's no credible argument against this. Different cults uh, who deny the deity of Jesus... They say things like, well, maybe Thomas just got carried away. Um, or that he saw the risen Lord, he just went too far and he called him God. Um, or maybe he was saying, my God, uh, kind of like a, an expression, like people do today. Um, which is just silly, actually, because in, for, in the first century, a first century Jew would never curse. That's what that is. Would never curse in such a way. And certainly in this context, it'd be a terrible thing to say. And he'd be rebuked instead of blessed. So we know by the reaction, first of all, it would never happen. Second of all, the reaction doesn't fit. So it's not, oh my God. Uh, And if he got carried away and just went too far in calling Jesus God, uh, we would see a reaction to that, like we see all over scripture. Think of Acts 14, when Paul and Barnabas, they healed a crippled man in the city of Lystra, and people were amazed. They misunderstood. They got carried away, and they called them gods, and they start making preparations to sacrifice to them. And here's how Paul responded to their error. He said, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. Paul rebuked them. He stopped them from doing what is, what is blasphemous. Because God alone, God alone is to be worshipped. Or another example we see in scripture is when angels appear. Because they're supernatural beings, people will sometimes fall down and begin to worship them. And in every case, the angels rebuke people for committing this act of idolatry. So if Jesus is not God, and Thomas clearly worships him 
as his God, then we'd expect Jesus to stop him, to rebuke him, but he doesn't. Instead, Jesus accepts his worship and gives a blessing. Concerning this, J.C. Ryle says, Forever let us bless God that the deity of our Lord is taught everywhere in scriptures and stands on evidence that can never be overthrown. Above all, let us daily repose our sinful selves on Christ with undoubting confidence as one that is perfect God as well as perfect man. He is man and therefore can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He is God and therefore is able to save unto the uttermost them that come unto God by him. This wonderful, rich confession concerning Jesus is what we should think of when thinking about Thomas. Jesus is both sovereign Lord and almighty God. Is this your confession? If so, then let me point out another word that Thomas uses. Thomas confesses Jesus not only as Lord and God, but as my Lord and my God. As with Thomas, Jesus offers himself to you for you to receive him in faith. But do you offer yourself to him? Do you surrender your life to him? If you do... If he is your Lord and your God, then like Thomas, you too will be saved. And John tells us, he tells us this is why he wrote this book. That you believe in Jesus. More specifically, that you believe in the right Jesus. The only true Jesus. The Jesus John describes as God. Not only here with Thomas, but think about the very beginning of his gospel. Where he says, describing Jesus, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And over these 20 chapters, John has repeatedly made this emphasis giving the seven I am statements of Jesus, and then focusing on his ministry to his disciples and his high priestly prayer, his saving work on the cross, then his glorious resurrection. And now in this instance, Thomas is confronted by the sovereign grace of Jesus who stoops to meet him in his stubborn resolve of unbelief. And the response is this great confession of faith that perfectly declares what John has said all throughout his gospel. Jesus is my Lord and my God. John tells us that he wrote this gospel gospel for people like Thomas, like all of us, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So our last point asks, okay, what does this mean for us? In verse 29, Jesus said to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
John begins and ends his gospel with the deity of Christ, emphasizing true belief. And then Jesus speaking of our blessing in believing. So, uh, what does this blessing mean for us? And to answer that, let's ask another question. What does it mean to be blessed? We see this all over scripture. The Bible is full of blessings. It begins and ends with blessings. God created all things and blessed his creation, calling it good. And then he ends the scriptures in Revelation 22. We read a blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. And in between Genesis and Revelation, we find a lot of things. But we continually find blessings. God makes man and he blesses them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. He, um, uh, he leads out Israel from bondage. And he blesses them through the mouth of his priest Aaron. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Jesus himself taught about blessings with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit being one of them. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we see blessings everywhere. Jesus blessed children. Jesus blessed faithful servants. Those who kept his word. And now at the end of John's gospel, Jesus blesses you. Us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. All of these disciples, and now Thomas, were confronted with the resurrected Christ before his ascension, and in seeing him, they believed. And of course, it's not as if they, they weren't blessed, they were blessed, but Jesus more specifically notes that we, that we, those who do not physically see the evidence of his resurrection and yet believe, are blessed. If you believe in Jesus, that's you. You are blessed. Okay, what does it mean to be blessed? Does it mean we're happy? Um, that because of God's salvation, we have, a, we have a sense of joy, a confident hope, regardless of of any circumstance that you're going through? Is that what it means to be blessed? Yeah. Partly. But not primarily. Primarily, um, being blessed actually has more to do with God than you. It has to do uh, more with God than your personal feelings or your outlook on life. Blessedness has to do with God's happiness. It has to do with God's favor. His favor towards you. And when we recognize this, when we realize that he has a, a favored outlook toward us, it results in happiness, joy, hope, contentment, blessing. When Jesus said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He's saying that God is pleased. God is pleased that there are people who believe in Christ who have never seen him. God is especially pleased because, I think, because 
this belief highlights the fact that true belief is more than rational deduction. It's more than investigation. It's more than physical evidence. He's pleased because this glorifies the reality of all saving faith. That it's all by God's grace. That he condescends and enables us to rightly see and believe. And again, this isn't to say that that evidence is wrong. Um, But ultimately, evidence and eyewitness accounts are only a means that God uses to bring about faith. Thomas is blessed. And I don't think an emphasis on our blessing means that Jesus was, was uh, rebuking him in some sort of way or any of the disciples who saw and believed. I'm sure Jesus was blessed that, that he was pleased that, that Thomas no longer disbelieved but believed. And he also sees in this knowing that he's going to ascend soon, he also sees a contrast. A contrast with all of the people who would never have this physical appearing, this physical sight of him prior to the ascension, and yet would believe. So he sees this contrast throughout, going on throughout the, the church because of the church, because of the Holy Spirit's work. And this is a special blessing because it clearly clearly glorifies the ultimate reason of our faith. That belief is not human reasoning. It's not the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. God looks upon our believing without seeing with great happiness and favor because it is to the praise of His glorious grace. We are especially blessed because... His sovereign electing grace is so clearly the reason for our believing without seeing. Keep this blessing in mind because there may be some Thomases in your life. And you have a role to play. There may be some doubters. There may be some skeptics that you know that you love. And we need to keep praying. We need to to keep patiently loving them and speaking the truth of Christ to them. In closing, author John Bloom, he imagined a a fictional retelling of Thomas's struggle and how we might be used of God. He writes this. Jesus' death had been difficult and confusing for everyone. Having been welcomed into Jerusalem like a king, he was dead before the week was over. And when the shepherd was struck, the sheep scattered, and they regathered in a secret hideout in Jerusalem. On Sunday, things took a weird twist. It began with Mary Magdalene insisting that she had seen Jesus alive that morning. True, Jesus' body disappearing was admittedly strange, but still everyone knew Jesus had really died. No one could really believe Mary's claim, except maybe John. Then later in the day, Peter announced that he also had seen Jesus alive. This troubled Thomas, but he figured he could cut Peter some slack after denying Jesus publicly. Who could blame Peter for desperately wishing it to be true? He just needed some time. But then Cleopas burst into the house Sunday night claiming that he walked. He walked 
with Jesus to Emmaus that afternoon. What Thomas found particularly hard to believe was that Cleopas and his friend hadn't even recognized Jesus the entire time until dinner. And then, poof, he just disappeared. Well, this excited everyone else. But Thomas only felt agitated. He desperately missed Jesus too, but he wasn't going to let grief make him believe the bizarre. Jesus is dead. Yet, he didn't feel like dousing everyone's unreal hope with a wet blanket of reality. They weren't ready to hear it anyway. Thomas decided he needed to clear his head with a walk by himself. After whispering a discreet excuse to Nathaniel, he managed to slip outside without notice. After being very careful not to betray the hideout, he covered his head and started down an empty street. The quiet was refreshing, but the walk wasn't as helpful as he had hoped. Jesus, the Jesus sightings, they disturbed him, especially because the witnesses were credible. He knew them. They weren't liars. They weren't unstable. None of None were given to delusions. Peter particularly was a rock of reason. A rush of memories from the past three years flowed through Thomas's mind. He had seen so many things that would have been unbelievable if he hadn't seen them. Most haunting right now was Lazarus. And Jesus had seemed to know that he was going to die in Jerusalem. He had said those strange things about his death and resurrection. And suddenly Thomas realized he was arguing with himself. His agitation really wasn't over his friend's failure to face the facts. The facts, in fact, were now confusing. He was agitated because part of him actually believed Jesus was alive again. That's what Jesus had meant, wasn't it? But this frustrated the skeptic in him who took pride in being a man of common sense. A resurrection just seemed too incredible to be true. The more he thought, the less sure he became. No one knew where Jesus' body was. Those who claimed to have seen him were people he trusted. It would make sense of certain prophecies. Could it be? His skeptic side shouted within him, Show me the body! At least Lazarus could be seen and touched in Bethany by any doubter. If Jesus really was alive, why this game of hide and seek? Wouldn't he just show himself to them all? He would believe Jesus was alive if he saw him alive for himself. When Thomas returned to the house, four of his friends pounced on him. We've seen the Lord, Thomas! It's all true. He was just with us. Where were you? Thomas felt a surge of shock and unbelief. Then he felt regret for having left. Then he felt isolated. He was the only one who hadn't seen Jesus. In in self-pity-fueled anger, he blurted out with more conviction than he felt, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Most of his friends were dismayed. But Peter just watched him, smiling slightly. 
The following eight days were long and lonely for Thomas. His friends were gracious. No one debated him. It was, in fact, their claim, their calm confidence in Jesus' resurrection that aggravated Thomas' growing conviction that he was wrong. Outside, he tried to maintain a facade of resolute intellectual skepticism, but inside, he was wrestling and melting and wanting more than anything to see Jesus too. And then it happened. Thomas was staring at the floor, sinking again under the fear that maybe Jesus had rejected him because of his stubborn unbelief. If so, he knew he deserved it. Then someone gasped. He looked up and his heart leaped into his throat. Jesus was standing across the room looking at him. Peace be with you. Thomas could hardly breathe. Jesus spoke to him. Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. All all objections and resistance in Thomas evaporated. And in tears of repentance, relief, and worship, Thomas dropped on his knees before Jesus and exclaimed, My Lord and my God! Be patient and gracious with the skeptics in your life. Don't assume their outward confidence accurately reflects their inward condition. Keep praying for them and share what seems helpful when it seems helpful. Keep confidently and humbly following Jesus and trust His timing. He knows best how and when to reveal Himself to each of us. Let's pray. Oh Father, we are so blessed. We are filled with your peace, knowing that you look upon us with favor, that you are pleased with us because of Jesus, that you love us perfectly, that you have forgiven us and declared that we have the very righteousness of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Thank you, Jesus, for willingly humbling yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross. We rejoice in the fact that you are alive, resurrected, ascended to the right hand of the Father, continually interceding for us. We praise you for your grace and mercy, for the work of the Holy Spirit who caused us to be born again and to rightly believe in Jesus, our Lord and our God. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Give us confidence in your sending of us to share the good news. We pray for your, for the um, various unbelievers in our lives, the skeptics, the doubters. Give us patience towards them. A patience that both lives out a life of faith and trusts you to use our words, to use the evidence, to use whatever it takes to bring them to saving faith. Thank you for your word that is living and active and powerful. Help us to remember that faith comes from hearing and hearing 
through the word of Christ. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.